Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, we're officially up and running now. Sorry I'm a little late. Thank you to those of you who are... Um, um, uh, to those of you who are um, uh, have wished me a happy birthday, it is indeed my birthday today. Uh, so thanks. For, and and before you ask, what what did I get for you? Uh, this lovely class that we're about to do is my gift to you here on my birthday. So, uh, but uh, I don't think you can. Maybe in some sense you can sneak out the back and come back in again and get a second one. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know we'll see. Um, Maybe uh, uh, this is not yet a birthday deserving of a party of special magnificence. So you know, it's just uh, it's just normal. In fact, if anything, this year's birthday is a slightly disappointing birthday because I have just ceased to be uh, the uh, uh, the 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 answer to life, the universe, and everything. So you know, it's always a bit of a a bit of a letdown. Last year was a was a much more fun birthday by contrast. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, <laughs> all right. St- Stephen Cover says I should put uh, snarky personalized name tags uh, on the class files for this. That's a that's a good uh, uh, that's a good uh, a good idea. Um, but anyway, all right. So uh, so let's dig into things because we're at risk of running a little behind, not unexpectedly. Uh, I hope you uh, had as much fun as I did looking at errantry stuff because we've still got more errantry stuff to look at uh, uh, from last time. Um, but first, I wanted to. Um, uh, I wanted to to just sort of give a little bit of an overview uh, of where we're of where we're headed and, and the sort of the theme for tonight, which actually spans both the second half of the Arantry poetry as well as the beginning of the Council of Elrond, which I do indeed hope to get to uh, tonight. Uh, and that is looking at, as you see from my uh, my title on today's class, drawn irresistibly towards the older world. Uh, that's of course a quotation from the foreword to the second edition. Uh, where he talked about how the story was always drawn irresistibly towards the older world, uh, thinking about its connection to the Silmarillion. Um, and that's what I want to be uh, kind of thinking about some today, because this is a fascinating... The Errantry poetry gives us a fascinating instance where we can see that happening in really interesting and gradual stages. Um, and how, and, and, and it does, it's not necessarily kind of linear in the way that we might think in some ways. Um, but anyway, it's, it's really fun, and we can see the same thing going on uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with the, the Council of Elrond uh, material. <laughs> Sorry, Matthew Hirschenroder was just saying, uh, doing more errantry. Uh, you know, he says, uh, uh, now who's sneaking out the back and coming in again? It's true. I'm double dipping with errantry stuff for my birthday. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, cool. So, um, so first, just a brief uh, uh, recollection, right? Last uh, book, last Tolkien book we did, when we did The Return of the Shadow uh, some months ago. Um, those of you who did that with me will, I hope, remember the very exciting moment uh, when we came on what I am convinced is the moment which was, which changed Tolkien's entire uh, entire creative career, that moment uh, when he officially brought the Silmarillion uh, uh, um, brought down that firewall between the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. Uh, which I'm pretty convinced had been there before, that moment when he transitioned from recycling material that he had already thought of in the Silmarillion and when he began to really integrate the stories together. Um, But, of course, that integration was um, not full yet. I mean, he, of course, he'd already written a whole bunch, 
right? Um, that didn't do that. And we saw some, you know, when we were looking at the third phase at the end of the Return of the Shadow, uh, some of the places where he seemed to be going back and, and, and you could see him already beginning to think a little bit differently now about how he was, in, especially in ancient history, the uh, chapter two, um, where you could see some of the Silmarillion stuff presenting itself in different ways. Um, well, as I said, Errantry provides a really interesting glimpse of that. So let's now specifically go back and, look, and recall the Errantry stuff. We've looked at three versions of the Errantry poem. Uh, the first version was just that, 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 that much shorter version, right? The version that he read aloud uh, to the Inkling student group. Um, the second, and that one, of course, was very, very flippant, right? It was very, uh, very merry, very upbeat, um, very, very funny and entertaining. It was a joke, right? The whole thing was a joke. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a lark all the way through with a gag at the end, right? Um, and it's definitely, um, uh, it's definitely. <sighs> It's definitely a fairy poem, even though it's light and flippant, right? And so it doesn't seem to have that that sort of uh, 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 quality of, of of longing and even uh, and even sorrow uh, that we uh, uh, will often associate with Tolkien's depiction of of fairies and fairy uh, in general. Um, but this was a this was a, a little diminutive fairy having a lot of fun fighting bugs and wooing bugs and and uh, uh, generally interacting uh, in comedic ways with other diminutive creatures. Um, the published version from 1933 uh, of Errantry that we then looked at next was basically in the same mold. We had fundamentally the same story, right, of our little fairy dude who was still wooing butterflies and fighting insects and. Um, uh, and and going around it and generally sort of having a lark, but it was different, right? We were noting in that second version how there was more sorrow, there was more seriousness. You know, there were there, the 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 effort of his journey, right? His loneliness and uh, uh, and his sorrowing and things like that were much more present. Uh, it was not just a lark all the way through from one end to the next. Um, so that was um, that was one really interesting thing that we saw shifting from that the very first concept to the published version but still fundamentally it was still the same the same story then he decides that he's going to give this poem essentially a version of this poem to bilbo in rivendell and so that brought us to the first rivendell version which is the one that we ended with last time and you will recall that that is a remarkably different poem many parallels right you can still see the same in a sense, the same basic outline, right? The same basic... I was going to say the same basic concept. Of course, there's elements of the concept that are quite different, but um, outline. Uh, let's, let's, let's say outline, right? V- very similar outline. Dude gets into boat at the beginning, right? Goes off sailing, has many adventures, um, crosses into fairy terrain, right? Um, you know, he, he passes the aisles where yellow grow the marigolds, right? And all that stuff. And uh, and then he's uh, equipped in armor and he learns uh, sigildry and stuff and he uh, uh, and, and then he's, he's, he's sent off and he goes and he, he, he fights things. 
arachnids, right? Arachnids are fought again. And then at the end, he finds that he, you know, he goes to return home at the end and finds that he, his errand is incomplete and he has to, he has to keep, uh, conti- he can't return home. He has to continue uh, his errand. That outline is the same, right? So in that sense, it's the same poem. And of course, in structure and a lot of the language, it's the same poem. Um, but the concept, the fundamental concept of the poem has deeply changed between the published version and the third version. Uh, and the primary change is that the, the protagonist is no longer a little dude anymore. He's no longer a diminutive fairy uh, who fights little insects. Uh, although he does fight an arachnid, it's ungoliant that he fought, right? Uh, not just Attercops, uh, as the original guy did. Um, so we've gone from whimsical little fairy with traces of, of sorrow and, and, uh, and, and melancholy to genuinely tragic mortal protagonist who, is, who finds himself, not of his own volition, right? Who falls asleep in his boat and wakes up in fairy, having sailed beyond the moon. Uh, and he doesn't just wake up in fairy. He still goes, you know, past the isles where yellow grow the marigold. But when he does, he finds himself not where there are heaps of fairy gold, uh, but where he finds himself in Valinor, right? He finds himself by Tyrion. And we start getting these actual names and places uh, from the legendarium worked in. Um, and then, of course, he's he is trans. He and his boat are both. You know, he undergoes this apotheosis. He's not just arming himself in order to go fight bugs, right? He is armed now by the elves in panoply of elven kings, and his boat is transformed and made into a flying boat. Uh, and diamonds are set on the mast, and it's shiny. Uh, no Silmarils involved, but shininess and gems. Uh, and he's set to fly in the sky, and off he goes. Uh, and off he goes into uh, uh, into fighting Ungoliant, right? He goes into Evernight uh, and kills Ungoliant and then goes into Evernoon and uh, has this remarkable encounter where he sees the Tree of Lightning and his face is radiant with leaven light, right? With the light of lightning. And he uh, uh, he's trans and he and then he wants to go home and he flies back over fairy or he comes back over Valinor and he goes back to mortal lands and finds that he can't return, right? He can't ever go home again and so he's doomed to stay. You know, a mighty doom is on him laid. That phrase "mighty doom" did not feature in the original Errantry, right? There was although the original Errantry guy, the original Merry Messenger, was uh, uh, mighty in his way at times, right, in his scale, uh, he never had a mighty doom laid upon him at all. Um, but a mighty doom was laid upon him when his ship was made to fly, uh, originally, and then we find the consequences of that, right, that uh, a mighty doom has been laid on him, he can't return, and he's doomed to continue flying the firmament forever in sight of, but never able to return to mortal lands. It has, so when he's there, and he's the flammifer of westerness, uh, at the end, the, the last line is already there, um, he is a tragic figure, because um, he's a, a mortal who's been taken, not by his own will to ferry, transformed there, and now he can never 
come back. Right. So in, in, in other words, it's now a fairy. It used it was a story about a little fairy. Now it's become a fairy story uh, in something which is much more like the way that Tolkien talks about fairy stories uh, in his famous essay. Um, uh, Tony asks, is it right to hear echoes of the death of St. Brendan in this version? Absolutely. Uh, St. Brendan uh, is one of the, you know, the, the Imram of St. Brendan. And of course, uh, uh, Tolkien has written a long po- poetic version called Imram uh, of St. Brendan's voyage, um, which, which bears some really interesting similarities, actually, to the Rivendell version of this poem, especially the sort of the visions that he receives. Anyway, um, on uh, St. Brendan, that is, on his voyage. Um, very much. That's one of the. That's one of the models. Um, yeah. And yeah, Josh. He, he wrote Imram after this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, my point is just that yes, it's 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 perfectly appropriate to be thinking about those two together. Saint Brendan is one of the is one of the models of this whole kind of uh, of a fairy story. So okay. Um, I want to come back to. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but I want to come back to the question of what does this have to do with Bilbo? Because it's connected, right? He is making this poem into a song that Bilbo can sing in Rivendell. Okay, that's the context of this poem. And I think it's especially interesting and important because remember, he's taking a different approach here. We've seen him fit his previous poetry into the Lord of the Rings before. Right, um, most notably in the Prancing Pony. Right, so what Frodo's going to sing a, a song at the Prancing Pony. Uh, so what does he do? He's got a bunch of poetry, right, that he really likes that he wants to work in. So he initially gives him one poem, and then he decides that that's not totally suitable. Right, the poem, of course, he originally gives him is the Troll Song. What's going to become Sam's Troll Song uh, eventually? And we finally saw. I think it was in the fourth phase text, right, that the the Troll Song finally made its appearance uh, in the place, you know, in its in its in its proper place uh, in the Troll Shaws when when they meet the, the stone trolls. Um, so he he he's originally Frodo originally is going to sing the Root of the Boot. Tolkien decides no, and he decides fairly quickly no, we're not going to do that. So what does he do instead? Does he revise the Root of the Boot to make it more suitable? No, I mean he does revise it eventually down the road, but but that's not. That's not his solution to the problem. His solution to the problem is, now, I'm going to go back to the drawing board, or rather, I'm going to go back to my filing cabinet, and I'm going to get another one of the poems that I wrote earlier on, right? And so he replaces The Root of the Boot, which he wrote back in, what, like, 1920, uh, and he replaces that with a poem that he wrote a couple years later, in, like, 1923 or so, um, The Man in the Moon, uh, well, the, the Man in the Moon stayed up too late. There were two Man in the Moon poems that he wrote. The Man in the Moon came down too soon, and The Man in the Moon stayed up too late. It's The Man in the Moon stayed up too late that he ends up putting in, and of course that becomes the poem that we all know, um, the Man in the Moon poem that Frodo uh, sings in The Prancing Pony. Here, he doesn't do that, right? His first impulse is to say, Errantry, wouldn't that be fun, right? And it's not surprising. It is no more surprising that he chose Errantry than it is surprising he chose the root of the troll song, the root of the boot, originally, because he loves the troll song. I mean, he just can't get enough of the troll song. And he loves Errantry. Obviously, he loves Errantry as he kept writing it and writing it and working on it and working on it. So here, he chooses Errantry. And then instead of saying, no, this doesn't really fit, because remember, we, we looked at that paragraph that he wrote in the introduction to The Adventures of Tom Bombadil when he published his poetry collection uh, much later on in the 60s. Um, 
And, you know, and, the, and, and we talked about, so remember the sort of fr- fictional Shire frame that he tries to put all the poems in? Uh, so he talks about uh, the Errantry poem being a poem written by Bilbo and that he wrote another poem, uh, uh, Arundel was a Mariner, right? Which was on the same model. And it was kind of strange that Bilbo, you know, connected those two things. But this is a, this is a Bilbo poem. Um, and uh, so... You know, we remember that, right? How he had contextualized that with uh, uh, from from Bilbo's point of view. But of course, we know that's not the actual history of the thing, right? He didn't just write a second poem in the same mode. That poem, he chose that poem and then developed it. But of course, as he explained in that paragraph of context within the frame, he called it unsuitable, right? It's just it's not really appropriate for Bilbo to sing in Rivendell. That like weird little elf. I mean, are you going to seriously sit in the house of Elrond half-elven half and sing a song about elves being little fairies marrying butterflies and, 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 and fighting dragonflies? Like, no, I don't think you are, right? That's, that's, uh, that would be, um, that goes beyond cheek, <laughs> really, uh, to do something like that. Um, Nancy thinks it would be hilarious, and I, uh, I, I, I agree. <laughs> And James Oakley says it's it's uh it's the half high elves. <laughs> that's, that's very very good. But they're somewhat less than half high, right? Um so yeah, it's uh it's that would clearly be a bad idea. But again, the interesting thing, going back and looking at it, clearly this was in Tolkien's mind, right? As he was not just totally forgetting his story and wanting to shoehorn this poem in. He wanted to make it fit with this to make it suit the story and the character and the situation, right? So what do we see? The first transition that we see from the published errantry to the first Rivendell poem is this complete paradigm shift, right? And it now becomes a mortal fairy story. Now, I want to come back and think about this a little bit more at the end um, after we look at the other versions of the poem. I want to continue tracing the growth of the poem and see how we find that developing uh, as it comes through, through the final draft. And then I want to return to this question. How does it fit with the story? Why Bilbo? Why Rivendell? We see him being very interested in that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, good. So let's, uh, let's, without further ado, let's dig back into the poem. Version four, the merry and or gallant messenger. This is the version where he waffles back and forth between merry and gallant uh, as the initial adjective of the messenger in the very first line there. There was a merry messenger, a passenger, a mariner. He built a boat and gilded her, and silver oars he fashioned her. Her sails he wove of gossamer and blossom of the cherry tree, and lightly as a feather in the weather went she merrily. He floated from a haven fair of maiden hair and lady fern. The waterfalls he proudly rode, where loudly flowed the merry burn. And dancing on the foam he went, on roving bent from hither land, through ever morning journeying, while murmuring the river ran to valleys in the gloaming fields. Then slowly he, on pillow cool, let fall his head, and fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pools. 
The weedy reeds were whispering, and mists were in the meadowland, and down the river hurried him, and carried him to Shadowland. He heard their moan in stony caves, the lonely waves, their roaring blows, the mighty wind of Tarmanel. By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it wafted pitiless, with, bu- with bitter breath across the grey, and long-forsaken seas distressed. From east to west he passed away. Now what do you notice? about uh about this initial passage about this 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 initial chunk of the poem here compared to the others it's very similar right uh, he's not departed hugely from the rivendell version now right um so we see a lot of things that are similar notice any differences how is it notice anything shift arthur says it's a bit less silly i agree there's there's and especially arthur i would say um, one of the things that we see is the beginning of, of, well, the continuing, really, of a softening of some of those internal rhymes, right? We saw that in the Rivendell version already. I think we see it even more here. No longer is he just reaching for the trisyllable lines, rhymes, rather, the trisyllable rhymes, um, because they're, um, like, because they're funny, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, sometimes they, they were forced, they're forced on purpose, right? That was the comedy of it, uh, was that they, the, the rhymes were really forced. We don't see that. Um, I, I would say uh, this last stanza, I think, illustrates that really well. The windy reeds were whispering and mists were in the meadowland. There's an internal rhyme there, but you can, it doesn't really even force itself upon you. Whispering and mists were in. Right? It's technically a trisyllabic rhyme, or at least a trisyllabic assonance, right? Um, it works, but it's almost just like a kind of echo. It doesn't force it, it doesn't, it's not like messenger a passenger, right? Which is more directly from the original version, right? It doesn't, it's not that kind of a clear forced rhyme and repetition, um, just more of a kind of echo, which really draws things together and gives it a really interesting kind of momentum in the sound of it, right? Um, without making it um, overtly comic in that way. Uh, but even just continuing on, he heard their moan in stony caves, the lonely waves, their roaring blows, the mighty wind of Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes. Think about the rhymes there, right? Um... Yeah, think of the, um, in stony caves, the lonely waves. That's a fairly close rhyme, but again, it's not, um, it's not like the ones that he, um, if you go back to the ones which he has imported from the earlier versions, um, it's not quite as, uh, striking, like, um, Lady Fern and Mary Byrne, for instance. Right, um, Mary Byrne again—a name made up just to make up the trisyllabic line. Right, and he's kept it here, but that's from the old version. Um, their roaring, their roaring blows, and seldom mortal goes. So, their roaring blows and mortal goes, not as close a rhyme. Again, more of an assonance, more of an echo of sound, but a close echo of sound, a, or deep echo of sound. That the trisyllabic. Uh, 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 nature of it makes it really makes it really deep. Um, Kate notices a, an increasing trend towards darkness. Um, 
with the uh, uh, pitiless and bitter breath. Yes, yes, definitely. Jez, I agree. More dreamlike, less whimsical, I think is interesting. Yes, that's a really neat way to, to, to talk about it, dreamlike. Um, and not always a happy fun dream, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's certainly disquieting elements here. Um, Arthur says it's more like a... Uh, um, it's, it's in a minor key. Uh, sounds more like that, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good Joyce is noticing not only thing, uh, pitiless and bitter, but, but, but thinking of the, the, the connection with Moan there, too. Um, notice what's changed in the plot there? Right at that moment that you guys are focused on in that in that third stanza there, um, there's a there's the the only major shift to the plot that we've seen here. No, I agree. I, I I'm forgetting whether it was Mary or Cecilia who said this. Um, the the presence of the cherry tree blossoms at the beginning still does. You know, the question was. Doesn't that suggest that he's still diminutive, right? If he's using if he's using uh, uh, blossoms of the cherry tree for a sale, see, it's less clear to me. Uh, mostly because um, he's using the cherry tree blossoms as a material from which he weaves the sails for his ship, right? Um, her sails he wove of gossamer and blossom of the cherry tree, right? So he's using gossamer and cherry tree blossoms, and he's weaving them together to make the sails. It's not like he's using a cherry blossom as the sail or something. Like, you know, he's not, he's not that small. It certainly, it certainly makes the sail weaving into a, a magical process, right? This is not just, a, a, this is not just a textile issue at this point, right? Um, yeah, but anyway, um, the description of the the main the, the 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 main plot thing, Jez Hunt says, kind of like a cloak of hair. Yeah, more like that. Um, so I I would say, uh, um, Mary or Cecilia again. I forgot which one of you it was. I your thing flashed across across my screen and is gone now. But um, the. Um, it does give it more of a fairy element, I would say, in that it's more magical, as Jez points out. It's more, it puts it more into the category of, like, Luthien weaving a, a, a magical cloak out of her hair, which is explicitly her casting a spell, right? And, uh, and then, it, it's more like that than it is like the work of a great craftsman, right? Um, but, um... Which is interesting, right? And it puts him in an interesting category from the beginning, uh, because it seems that does seem to make him something. He's not just a random mortal, right? Uh, that those those lines, his boat's pretty special, right? Um, so he he's not just like a random fisherman caught out at sea. Um, but um, you'll remember the sequence by which he's abducted, right, and finds himself in fairy. He's only a few lines long in the Rivendell version. Um, he falls asleep and then a wind comes up and wafts him beyond the moon and it's gone in like four lines. This whole um, this whole stanza, you know, he's fallen asleep up here. Um, fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pools. And he's, there's, he's not drawn up beyond the moon. We don't get that line, right? Instead, the wind picks up, he, he floats down past the reeds, 
And Shadowland is now a place that he goes in in his sleep, right? Shadowland was a place that he passed through while awake before. Now it's a place that he goes when he's asleep. And um, he's brought along on, uh, uh, as Kate points out, on paths that seldom mortal goes, right? Which is still kind of straight roadish, right? It still is like that magical path to fairy. I don't think the conception has totally changed, but the description has. He's not just taken beyond the moon. He is wafted pitiless with bitter breath across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. That's his path now, right? Um, he's being brought into through what sounds now like a death-like experience. Before, he went to sleep and then he woke up and he was like, oh! Hey, I'm on the other side of the moon. I'm in fairy now, right? Now, this sounds, Sharon, as you were pointing out before, more like death, right? Um, culminating with, as Sharon was particularly pointing out, from east to west, he passed away. Um, it sounds like at least a metaphor for death, right? Uh, so that's interesting. Through evernight, then born afar, by waters dark beyond the day, he saw the lonely island rise, where twilight lies upon the bay of Valinor, of elven home, and ever-foaming billows roll. He landed on the elven strands of silver sand and yellow gold, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, where glimmer in a valley sheer the lights of towering Tyrion, the city on the Shadowmere. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and lays of old, and marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. Of glamour he tidings her. I think that must be glamoury again. We're still missing that syllable. Uh, autocorrect hates glamoury. Of glamoury he tidings heard, and binding words of wizardry. They spoke of wars with enemies that venom used in sigildry. In panoply of ancient kings, in silver rings they armored him. His shield they writ with elven runes that never wound did harm to him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrows shorn of ebony. Of mithril was his haberjan, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helm was wrought, an argent wing of swan his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Okay. Um... What do you notice? Yeah, Kate points out that the whole, the whole trip is very serious, despite him starting off as merry, right? Um, but Kate, remember, we're waffling between merry and gallant there, which and which becomes really interesting in the context, right? If we start off with instead of him being merry, him being gallant, we have him undergoing serious hardships, but we're told at the beginning that he could take it, right? Because he's gallant. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Josh, his arming is an even greater detail than before. Um, and Mary, yes, this is the first reference to Mithril. Mithril's never featured uh, in here before, uh, which is which is kind of interesting, right? Um, that concept has worked its way in. Uh, just to to remind you, you will find the word Mithril in the Hobbit, right? Bilbo's Mithril coat, but that's a revision from after the Lord of the Rings. Um, I believe that's a third edition change uh, in The Hobbit, so that dates to the, to the early 60s. Um, the original text of The Hobbit said that his, uh, his corselet was of silver steel, was, was the original Hobbit phrase. So the concept of Mithril does not date back to the time of The Hobbit, though it might seem like it does, uh, thanks to the later revisions. It's, um, it's, a, it's a Lord of the Rings concept, right? Um, so we do see that we do see that beginning to work in, which is interesting. 
we could do, I don't want to take the time, though it would be kind of fun to do a point-by-point comparison. Um, I actually think, because it's one of the most consistent elements of every version of this poem, that is the description of his armor, right, and his arming, um, and uh, it's... um, uh, so I, I, it's, it's, it, it would be really fascinating to do a really close comparison of how he's, uh, how he's dressed. And when you see that, you see that some of the elements kind of float around. There's always an emerald involved, but the emerald is different stuff. You know, one version, his helmet is made of emerald. In another version, it's his sword that's made of emerald. Now there's an emerald uh, upon his breast, right? Um, I would say this is more... Uh, human, right? He sounds more like a regular, though awesome, warrior uh, in this version. Um, Now, Josh, that's a good question. Josh is asking, is this the first mention of Mithril, period? Uh, Yeah, studying all these things, you know, going through, it's one of the things about going through the history of Middle-earth, I can't can't remember. Um, I think, I think Mithril was referred to Somebody go look it up in The Return of the Shadow. Go look in the index of The Return of the Shadow and see if Mithril is there. Because uh, I think it came up in the in the first trip to Moria um, in the Ringo South parts, you know, in the, 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 the last few chapters, I think. Um, but, um, anyway... Okay. Um, yeah, Tomas, we are absolutely evolving into a more epic tone. Um, there's nothing cute at all about this description of his armor, right? Um, it's been getting less cute for a while, but this is the least, certainly the least cute uh, version of it. And another element, and this is fairly obscure, can anybody tell me the significance of what else is on his breast? Right, He's got the green stone on his breast, Um which, for which, by the way, Sarah, I don't. I think this is the first instance of a green stone on somebody's breast. I don't think. I think this. I think it originates here. Um, it's not a reference to. So don't be thinking of the elf stone because I don't think it exists yet. Because um, uh, as I recall, the the stuff about the Alessar, the elf stone, is all later stuff. Um, he's got the swan's wing. Why is that important? What's interesting about the fact that this dude gets a swan's wing on his breast? Yes, that was the symbol of the House of Tuor. Tuor's symbol was a swan's wing from the time when he saw the swans and followed them to the sea uh, in his journey. This is an explicit Gondolin reference. Um, We have Eärendil, right? Now, remember, he was already Eärendil-ish, last time, right? Uh, But the number one thing, no. The only thing that was certifiably Eärendil-ish about him, um, specific detail that was clearly Eärendil-ish, was his destruction of of Ungoliant, right? As that was listed among the things that that he, uh, Eärendil, was scheduled to do if Tolkien had ever gotten around to writing the story of Eärendil, which he never did. Um, so we know that that, but, but again, but that's loose, right? Again, that was on the list of many adventures that he was supposed to go on. And that was, that was in flux, right? That was, that was brainstorming. So 
it's it's it shows that we're kind of in the zip code of Arendel, right? We're we're think he's he's clearly associated with Arendel in Tolkien's mind to some extent, but it's not an identification. Now he's wearing the badge of the House of Tuor, right? And that is something that is that is in the text that he did write, right? The story of the fall of Gondolin in Unfinished Tales is one of the earliest of the no the earliest I think as I recall of the unfinished uh, no, not unfinished tales of the lost tales right from the book of lost tales, um, so he uh, uh, he t- so he did write the fall of Gondolin in full and it's the only full version of the fall of Gondolin he ever wrote he never rewrite he never rewrote it uh, in full, so so here we have a much clearer version we've gone from he performed a heroic act which also. Arendel was in various brainstorming lists associated with doing to now he's wearing the, the symbol of Arendel's house, right? Of Tuor's house. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Uh, Sharon says that, uh, Ithril is thrown out as a, as an idea, but not Mithril. It's not. So the, the concept was there, but he wasn't, uh, um, he was, he hadn't finalized it yet. Okay. But, of course, we have to remember, Christopher Tolkien is a little unclear, I think he's a little uncertain, about the dates of this poem, um, where in the process of the revision and development of the story, you know, he's thrown all of the versions of Errantry into this chapter, so he doesn't have to keep coming back to it, and I'm really glad that he put them all in one place, um, uh, and didn't make us have to hunt all over for them, Um, but... We're getting into the, the Rivendell version, the version we ended with last time, uh, the one with the killing of, of, of Ungoliant. That's written at the time, you know, at around the time chronologically that we've gotten up to in the Treason of Isengard. This is a little bit later, and I'm, I don't recall the date of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, so the, the Mithril idea clearly developing around this time, but uh, we can't be sure that this is the first reference to it. But it's still certainly very early in any case. Okay. But mostly the plot is the same. He arrives in Valinor, and he is armed, and he is taught, right? Um, he is, uh, uh, he's taught about enemies, and he hears binding words of wizardry and, and all this stuff. Um, uh, uh, Sigildry. What is Sigildry? Sigildry is mm, like magic worked with runes, basically, but it's a word which Tolkien is the first person to use and. Uh, more than 500 years, basically. <laughs> it's not attested in English between the 14th... I think it's the four, early 14th century and when Tolkien uses it. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Josh. Uh, uh, Lotro rune keepers are basically practicing sigildry. That's... that's uh, um, and, and, and Josh, I wish they called it that. I really do. Uh, I suppose that word would probably not go over all that well, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. Yana, you know, this is one of many reasons that we need a proper ebook version of these books. And excuse me, if anyone from HarperCollins is listening, would you please publish an e-text of the history of Middle-earth? Is that so much to ask for crying out loud? But anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Not to mention audiobooks. But, you know, if there were an e-text, I could at least have the my iPhone read it to me. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, there you know, what can you do? Um, okay, let's keep going. Because now is when it starts to, we get a serious departure. Uh, Mary, I knew you would agree with that uh, call for an audio text. 
His boat anew they built for him, of timber felled in elven home. Upon the mast a star was set, its spars were wet with driven foam, and eagle wings they made for her, and laid on her a mighty doom to sail the windy skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. Still pretty close to the previous version, but now watch. From Everaven's lofty hills, where softly silver fountains fall, he passed away a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end then he turned away, and yearned again to seek afar his land beneath the morning light, and burning like a beacon star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame, a marineer, on winds unearthly swiftly borne, uplifted o'er the shadow mere. He passed o'er Calakirian, where Tyrian the hallowed stands, the sea below him loudly roared on cloudy shores in Shadowland, and over Evermorn he passed, and saw at last the haven fair, far under by the merry burn in Lady Fern and Maidenhair. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are, forever still a passenger, a messenger to never rest, to bear the burning lamp afar, the flamifer of westerness. What do you notice? What do you notice? Um... Yeah, Nancy, we still do get that reference to enemies with venom, but we're not fighting outer cops of any size anymore. Um, yeah, Josh, no errantry of any kind, right? Uh, the, we, we have the end. He does, there's, uh, he does not do a single, um, a single act of daring do. He's armed. He's prepared. He's taught. He's given this ship and he's sent off. And he does nothing? Not exactly nothing. He crosses the mighty mountain wall and goes to World's End, apparently, but at that point then he turns away and yearns to seek afar. Many of those lines are very similar to the ones in the previous version, but it's cut out the entire... It's cut out Evernight, right? We, we we refer to it, right, to Evernight, but we've cut out the whole Ungoliant section in the fight, right? So the whole... He is the warrior... The, the, like the, the, the champion of the light against the darkness, which we saw? Gone. His ascension to the land of light and, and the radiance shining from him uh, as a consequence of his beholding this light? Gone. And now we just have him doomed. Think back to what we were noticing at the beginning. This whole poem now is sad. Really sad. He didn't ask for any of this. The dude fell asleep in his boat. And then he's wafted off on the, you know, through the bitter breath and, 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 and you know, and, and the moaning, right? Uh, you know, he went through this, he was dragged into this death-like experience, emerged at ferry on the other side. You know, they they still uh, they still armored him and pimped his ride, but then what? That doomed him. That's the mighty doom, right? A mighty doom is laid on his boat, right? But obviously a mighty doom is laid on him as well. And that doom is just, you can't ever go home. We've taken you now. We've transformed you. Um, we have made you, you know, among the stars, 
and now you can never go home. And that's it. At least in the last one, he accomplished something, right? Um, so this is a almost wholly tragic version of the poem, which is uh, pretty striking. Nancy thinks this is probably not a great song to sing in Elrond's house either. But notice, Nancy, that's what's so fascinating about this, right? It's not like this is where he went and then was like, oh, wait, that doesn't work so well. This is what he revised it to, right? He starts with the epic hero and champion version, right? Hero, hero champion, and revelation version, right? Um, who yet is doomed. But at least the guy in the previous poem, the mariner in the previous version, and remember, he's only a mariner in that version. He's not called a mariner in the previous versions, as Sharon was pointing out last time. Um, the mariner of the Rivendell version had a good run, right? I mean, there's a sense in which you could say, okay, uh, there's a cost, right? He accomplishes this great thing, but there's a cost to it. In fact, the pattern is interestingly familiar, right? Uh, That in order for great good to be done, in order for evil to be vanquished, there has to be sacrifice, right? Someone has to give... Uh, in order for things to be saved, someone has to give them up, right? And that seems to be kind of what was happening there. Um, and so it's still... The, the the tragedy at the end of the Rivendell version is, you know, the first Rivendell version is still, version is still clear. But, but it's, you know, it comes at the sort of the triumphant ending, right? Um, here, there isn't. It's just all cost. Um, why? Why? Why this shift? How does that make sense? And Lynn, I don't know the difference between a mariner and a marineer, apart from the fact that one rhymes with Shadowmere and the other one doesn't. Um, my suspicion, Lynn, is that there are, like, variant versions and that Tolkien is feeling free to choose between, as he likes. Um, but I don't recall ever encountering the word marineer with two E's in a- anywhere outside of this poem. Like, you know, this set of poems. Like, you know, the whole errantry suite here. I, I, don't, I don't ever remember seeing that anywhere in English. Maybe it exists. If you've, got, if you've got an OED around, look it up. See if there are any other attested instances of marineer. Uh, but I don't, I don't know of any. Um, uh, yeah, see, well, see... If the shifting were totally just towards sacrifice, I could think, Josh, that it was pointing towards Frodo's sacrifice. But it's it's gone through that and passed and out, right? It's no longer there. Um, uh, he was um, he was focused on the sacrifice in the third version, right? But now in the fourth version, he's cut out the sacrifice. Um, Anyway, um, <laughs> interesting. Uh, Yana says that um, 
Marinier is very close to the Dutch word, uh, if that helps. You know, it might, Jana. I mean, you know, I'm no philologist, uh, but obviously Tolkien was, right? So maybe the fact that it's similar to the word in Dutch su- suggests that my theory is right, right? That he's, he's that the word marinier, uh, that there's... Uh, one thing I'm, I'm sure of, Lynn, if you were to ask Tolkien that question, why did you call him a, a marinier? I bet you you could get a two-hour answer to that question from Tolkien, because I have no doubts that he uh, that he uh, had a long explanation, and it's probably related to like uh, the the you know the etymology of the word mariner and its connection to and and so Yana, your point about Dutch uh, seems to suggest that that's probably true, right? Uh, somewhere in the history of the Germanic languages is probably the explanation for why he used mariner uh, instead of mariner. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, So, Sharon, thinking about my why question, right? Why does he shift from the epic hero version, right, to the purely tragic version? Uh, Sharon is suggesting maybe it was... uh, uh, you know, too cool and exciting for the story and would sort of, uh, you know, distract from the story at hand. You know, the bridesmaid can't outshine the bride. Um, maybe. Well, here's one thought that I have. The, the thing that I keep coming back to, believe it or not, is the swan's wing on his breast. Um, it seems like a small point. But it's very suggestive to me. And what it, specifically what it suggests is that this guy, and therefore this poem and this story, lives in the world. He's not named. Eärendil does not appear, right? His name does not appear. And no element of his story appears, right? This is not obviously the story of Eärendil. You know, the, the long, huge tale of Eärendil was never told. But we do at least know the outline, right? We do know about the... Uh, you know the the the, the settlement um, in the Bay of Balar and his voyages and his going to uh, his going to Valinor and his you know, and in some versions his attempt to uh, sort of you know convey the message to the you know the the imploring the mercy of the Valar. We always know that stuff, right? He had a wife, right? Uh, you know the Silmaril was involved. There's no Silmaril here. There's a star, but it's not a Silmaril, right? Um, so, this is still not clearly Eärendil's story, and yet we have come a very clear step towards plainly identifying the Marinier with Eärendil, right? Um, placing him within that actual story. Again, thinking about the pattern that I was talking about at the very beginning, that shift that he is in the midst of undergoing in the context of the Lord of the Rings, that shift from... I'm recycling concepts from the Silmarillion to I am integrating the Silmarillion with the story that I'm telling. And that, the, the swan's wing on his breast um, seems to me a really interesting point. In the previous version, it's, we're recycling Eärendil. It's not Eärendil. And you can tell, remember I was um, complimenting Christopher Tolkien on not attempting to, like in Evernoon with the lightning tree and everything else. Remember last time I was saying 
do I think that this fits within, like, if we go back to the Silmarillion, is this something? No, it's not from the Silmarillion. That person is not in the Silmarillion. The flaming fountain and the lightning tree, there is nothing like that. It is not the tree. It is not Laurelin and Telperion. It's absolutely not. It's just different. It's something totally outside. Uh, There is no Evernoon like that in the Silmarillion world. Um, And so I think that that story, the the first Rivendell version uh, of this, is not in the Silmarillion world. It's recycling, right? Um, it's, um, it's, it's using the concept, it's specifically that particular adventure of Eärendil's when he was going to go kill Ungoliant. It's recycling Ungoliant. It's got Valinor in there, right? Um, but it's still not really native to that world. Now, Swan's Wing on his breast, right? Now he is of the House of Tuor. He's, we- he, he's wearing the House of Tuor on his chest, right? the symbol of the House of Tuor. So, um, what, and, and, and what happens? What's the other major difference? He cuts out all the stuff that doesn't fit, right? Um, Evernight and Evernoon, which neither one of them really has a place uh, within the developed Silmarillion mythos, um, they're gone, right? There's nothing that he refers to in this poem that can't be made to fit, right? It still doesn't obviously correspond. We have no references to Gondolin, no clear references to the Bay of Balar, right? Elwing isn't there. There's lots of things in the story that aren't here, but there's no longer anything here that isn't there, if you see what I mean, right? And if you can think of an example that I have missed, let me know, but I don't think there's anything here. He's cut out all that other stuff. Um... Yeah, and Jennifer points out that the the move towards tragedy does move it more towards the tone of the the Eärendil story, uh, which is bittersweet at best, especially in the versions where Elwing is dead or lost. Yes, do remember, um, and thanks Jennifer for the reminder there. The story of Eärendil, which was very much in flux, what he was doing, what you know that he went and sailed to Valinor, um, that he had that sort of Imram voyage into the West, was one of the core elements of his story from the beginning. But whether his story was happy or sad, there are versions of that in the Book of Lost Tales notes where he is not even conveying the message, where he doesn't accomplish anything, um, and where he never is reunited with it, where he spends the rest of his days hopelessly searching for Elwing and never finding her. So certainly, that element of tragedy is certainly part of it, um, uh, associated at least with the A. Arundel story. Um, yeah, Sarah, good. Sarah Lagarde says the earlier version, the, the Rivendell version, sounded more like the imagery Tolkien will use uh, in the fairy as described in Smith of Wooten Major. Yes, I think he's recycling some of that stuff in in in, in Smith there, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so if I had to describe the progress from the third version to the fourth version, I think it's that. I think that it's the same outline, same general story, and yet it's now being brought into alignment, the next step moves it a step further. Finally, we, we ditch the... We, we, we avoid the question of whether or not he's gallant or merry, right? And we just name him in the first line. Eärendil was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathel to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. 
Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, from gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heat and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and past and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from east to from west to east, and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. As bird than Elwing came to him, and flame was in her carcanet, more bright than light of diamond was fair that on her heart was was fair that on her heart was set. The Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with a living light, and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night from other world beyond the sea there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with mighty breath, as driving death across the grey and long-forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away. All right, what do you notice? What do you notice? Okay, clearly, right, we now have the full integration of the Arendel story. We've named him in the first, and it's not just the name, right? Uh, we have Elwing, right? Elwing and the Silmaril. And his, and his, uh, his quest, right? He is deliberately setting out and trying to get into the West. So that general shape of mortal marineer, right, who ends up, who falls asleep and ends up in fairy, like, you know, that, 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 that progress exactly, Mary, his journey is no longer an involuntary one. That's a huge shift, right? Huge shift. Um, he's now uh, setting out and failing, trying and failing to get uh, into the West to try to get into uh, into fairy, um, and yes, we're getting very close to the published text now, Josh, as you as you as you say, um, and yes, Stephen, the in, the in, internal rhymes do continue to well weaken is a fair description. I prefer to say soften because I like them even better now. Um, and they're still just as deliberate, and I think just as powerful. They just are different. Um, so, uh, um, there's a difference between, um, so I just, we still have the trisyllabic rhymes, assonances, echoes, right? They're all still there, um, but they're even less prominent, right? It just gives the whole thing, it ties it all together and gives it a resonance, which I find so delightful to listen to. Um, you look at almost any examples of this, right? Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far, right? Under star he wandered far. Um, it's close, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't clank at you, right? It doesn't punch you in the face with the comic. This is not, uh, we're no longer trying to find a rhyme for porridger here at all, right? It's, it's, it's continuing the progression that we've seen of softening those. And yet, uh, the play, not word play, like it's like phoneme play, right? That he does uh, is still really, really rich. Um, with burning brow, he turned his prow. Um, uh, uh, his boat it bore with mighty breath as driving death. Um, yeah, this, uh, there's so much. Um, 
from east to west and errandless unheralded he homeward sped um errandless unheralded uh, I, I i love i love it notice how the connection is all in the middle there right um they both start with short vowel sounds you know er and un and they end differently less and dead right but it's the middle the errandless and heralded um so that syllable in the you know so the two trisyllabic words right which have the same shape in the middle though they differ at the beginning and the end right uh it's just it it creates a really neat cadence i keep wanting to compare it to rhythm but it's not exactly rhythm it's not about the rhythm I mean, of course the rhythm is its own thing um but it it like it adds this it's almost like adding an extra dimension uh, which I find so fascinating, right? It's not just the it's not just the rhythm of the lines; it's the sound of the words that's uh, that's continually uh, playing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good, um, uh, good, great, uh, Stephen. That's a really interesting one. Um, At last he came to night of naught and past, and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. And never sight he saw of shining shore. Yeah, there's very little rhyme there, right? Um, He's not forcing it at all. He's not even really attempting it. What do we get instead? Consonant play, right? Sight he saw of shining shore. It's not even the same sound, right? But the two S's of the end of the one line turn into two sh shuz right in the in the next line uh sight he saw of shining shore that's cool right again it's it's sound play phoneme play right uh not uh not not even exactly rhyme and not even always assonance uh, as you as you as you point out um and lots of alliteration josh um i think it would be interesting i haven't I haven't spent enough time uh, asking this question and going through, but it would be interesting to see. I would be... I wonder if there's more alliteration in these later versions of the poem than there was in the original version. My guess would be yes, but I'm not sure. Um, Yeah. Anyway. Um, Okay. What else do we see here? We still have him born by a wind. How does he get to fairy? He's still born by a wind, right? A wind of power in Tarmanel, right? Bears him by paths that seldom mortal goes. That's still the same, right? And the, the, um, his boat it bore with mighty breath as driving death. It still happens, right? But again, it's so important that this is no longer, um, this is no longer, um, Involuntary, right? This is him finally succeeding, and you know that word. Thinking about the history of the, of the of the poem, the word that jumps out to me so much, errandless, right? The whole joke of the early poem is that he had an errand and he forgot it, right? Just in in errantry and daring do, he 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 forgot to perform his errand, right? Um, and notice how. That whole joke is a pun as well, right? He had an errand, and he forgot his errand because he was doing errantry instead, right? It's it's awesome, right? Arendel has no errand, or 
when he's returning home. He's he's returning home uh, errandless and unheralded. Um, so he's not returning home having forgotten his errand. He's returning home having failed in his errand, right? Having abandoned his errand and 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 having been unable to accomplish it. Um, so, but then he turns around and heads. So you notice that the returning home, uh, errandless in one sense or another, and then having to go back out again, is now implanted in the near the beginning of this poem, right? Which is really neat. Which is a really neat uh, 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 transforma- transformation. Yeah, Sharon, Carcanet, uh, this was definitely the place I learned the word Carcanet as well. Uh, there, there, there are several vocabulary words that I gained from this poem. <laughs> Definitely. This is the place where I first encountered a bunch of words. Not just words like sigildry, but uh, but yeah, carcanet, uh, chalcedony. I had no idea what chalcedony was. Um, I had no idea what a, a haberjan was, or habergian, um, but it's clearly pronounced haberjan. It's clearly trisyllabic, that word, the way that he uses it uh, in this poem. Um, but, um, but yes, Josh, I agree. This is explicitly... Um, uh, in in the, in the new, explicitly Silmarillion context, this is now the uh, the the wind of power in Tarmanel is now definitely um, the wind of Manway, right? That is now blowing him to them instead of keeping them away. Um, let's keep going. Through Evernight, then born afar by waters dark beyond the day, he saw the lonely island rise where twilight lies upon the bay of Valinor of elven home and ever-foaming billows roll. He landed on forbidden strands of silver sand and yellow gold. Beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamps of towering Tyrion were mirrored on the shadow mirror. It would be an interesting study just to see the way that the word shadow mirror wanders around in these versions of the poem. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and lays of old and marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. In panoply of ancient kings, in serried rings they armored him. His shield they writ with elven runes that never wound did harm to him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrows shorn of ebony, of silver was his haberjohn, his scabbard of cal. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tall, an argent flame upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. His boat anew they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass. The silmaril was, was hanging bright as lantern light on slender mast. And eagle wings they made for her, and laid on her a mighty doom, to sail the shoreless skies and come beyond the sun and light of moon." Okay, when he gets there, it's similar, right? All the, as far certainly the plot is the same. He arrives, right? Uh, passes the lonely island, arrives in Elven home, uh, sees you know beneath Tyrion, right? He tarries there. He's taught stuff. He's given awesome. He's armed, and then they pimp his ride, right? So that stuff all happens just the same as in pretty much both of the last two versions of the poem. Um, But there are some interesting differences. What do you notice about the differences there? 
Yes, Arthur notices they're teaching him melodies. Yeah, yeah, there were some melodies involved before, but he's not being taught about wizardry anymore, and there's no, there hasn't been any sigildry either. Um, yeah. Rachel wants to know why the crest is changed to flame. Um, that's the, the crest of his helmet, um, not the heraldic crest. But he, he, but, but Rachel, he loses the swan's wing, right? The swan's wing was like the thing which really clearly linked it to the Silmarillion story. Now we're Silmarillion all through, all the time, right? And we've lost the swan's wing, which is interesting to me. Um, and yeah, Josh was just asking that. Yeah, where'd the swan's wing go? Exactly. Um, uh, James, yes, the Naglamir is described as being a carcanet of gold. Absolutely. But that was the second place I encountered the word. This was the first, because uh, I didn't read the Silmarillion until until uh, uh, many years after I'd read the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, so his crest being changed, to, so the crest of his helmet is, as a flame is pretty cool, right? Uh, uh, pretty magical. Um Notice that it's not his armor that's mithril now. The ship is made of mithril and of elven glass, um, so that his ship is more completely transformed, uh, and the Silmaril is being set on the mast instead of the star. There was just a star put on it before, right? Now it's the Silmaril. Um, Anything else strike you? One word in that first stanza really jumps out at me. Again, it's mostly similar, um, but, uh, one thing that's new, forbidden. He landed on forbidden strands. And there again, it's Silmarillion story. Um, it was, you know, unusual <laughs> for a mortal to come there before. Um, but of course it's, it's, it's doubly relevant to emphasize that he is transgressing onto forbidden lands, right? Um, both because, A, it's the story of Eärendil, right? Uh, and that's part of it. And B, he was coming of his own will, right? Um, he was enabled by the Silmaril. To, you know, when he put the Silmaril on his brow, things changed and the wind came up and brought him over, right? Um, where it didn't before. But he was trying to transgress, uh, and the Silmaril enabled him to succeed. Whereas before he was just abducted. A little hard to abduct somebody and say, hey, you don't, you shouldn't be here, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, all right, let's go on. Because this kind of, now we're at the pivotal moment, right? Is he going to go on any adventures? Is he going to kill Ungoliant? What's going to happen? From Everevens lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall, he rose on high, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end then he turned away and yearned again to seek afar his land beneath the morning light and beacon and burning like a beacon star. On high above the mists he came, a distant flame, a marineer, on winds unearthly, swiftly borne, uplifted o'er the shadow mere. So, just like the last one. All tragedy, no heroism, right? We're still cutting all the good stuff about Ungoliant and Evernoon, right? So is it the same? 
or is there something different? He passed o'er Calakirian, where Tyrian the hallowed stands. The sea below him loudly roared on cloudy shores in Shadowland. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. For ever still on errand, as a herald that shall never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness. What do you notice? Um... Jennifer points out, you know, giving him armor and weapons and protective spells doesn't make much sense now that he's not going to be fighting spider gods. Yeah, uh, uh, Jennifer, I agree. The line about uh, that never, uh, uh, the, the, the wounds line, right? Uh, um, his shield they writ with el- elven runes that never wound did harm to him. It's like, well, you know, if you're never attacked, that's not saying much, right? Uh, I agree. It's a little bit. Now, that's both of the last two versions took that straight from the third version, right? This is from the Rivendell version on, he's been armed and equipped in the panoply of elven kings uh, by the elves, by the fairies, right, in Valinor. Uh, now, uh, but in the last two versions, since we were not going to go fight on Goliath anymore, it does seem, well, if not, I won't say pointless, but there is sort of the question, right? Why? Why do it? Um, other than to make him... Radiant, right? Again, it's like an apotheosis. He's being made into this godlike creature through the intervention of the elves. Um, for a role, right? In version three, at a cost. In version four, it's like, oh, and by the by the way, didn't we mention right that well? On the one hand, we will make you radiant and your boat awesome, and we'll let you, uh, we'll, we'll we'll let you, we'll turn you into a flying ship. But, oh, did we, we didn't mention, right, that you can never go home after we do this to you, right? I mean, that's kind of how it worked uh, in the previous version. But what about now? What about now? Yes. Good. Exactly. The main difference, Sharon, is now we get weeping women and elven maids. Yeah, exactly. Um, Before, in the last version, the only emphasis was on his tragedy. He wanted to go home and found, tragically, that he could not. Right? That he was doomed. A mighty doom was laid on him to continue sailing in the sky. If he was accomplishing something, we didn't know what it was. And he didn't seem to know what it was, as far as we could tell. Right? Um, Because all that was emphasized was the tragedy of his inability to return home. Now... We do, and James, wonderful observation, James points out uh, he was errandless and unheralded before, earlier in the poem, right? Now he's ever still on errand as a herald, right? He has a job. Um, He has an errand. And his errand now will never end. Just like the errand of the errantry dude, right? The little wee fairy fellow uh, from the original poem, whose errand will never end because he's too, uh, uh, you know, he's too uh, irresponsible ever to complete it, right? Now, Arendel is also ever on an errand, on a never-ending errand. Um, but not because he's feckless, right? But rather because it is still going on, right? Um... 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and Sharon points out that with his inclu- with the inclusion of women, his uh, his doom crosses the species line, right? Yes, uh, he's interested in the fate of both elves and men, right? And we see that clearly there. Um, Arthur, yeah, I think um, um, uh, real men in Middle Earth don't weep. <laughs> Apparently, it's the weeping of the women and the elven maids uh, that he's uh, uh, that he that he is responding to. Um, but but the point is. He's doing something. Now, as Josh points out, he's not doing the thing we'd rather expect him to be doing. That is, we never see him giving a message to the Valar. We don't know why he was trying to go to Ferry originally, right? And we don't see that he's necessarily accomplished anything. That is, we, we don't see him delivering the, me- the errand, right? Delivering the message. He does have a message, right? At least Arendo had a message uh, in the published Silmarillion, but he doesn't have a message here. Um, he's... Uh, uh, or if he does, it's not mentioned as part of this version of the story. Um, uh, Lynn asks a great question. She says the, you know, the the phrase "doom was laid on him," right? And the the syntax of that leads Lynn to ask the question: Does that mean he had no choice? Well, see, in the last two versions of the poem, he didn't, as far as we could see. Again, he was abducted. Eärendil in this version has not been abducted. He has accomplished what he was trying to do, which is go to Valinor. We don't know why, but he was trying to go there and he accomplished that, right? So he has gotten himself into this. The other guy didn't get himself into it at all, right? Um, so now a mighty doom is laid on him. Does not necessarily to me say, before again before it's just tragical. You know, this doom was laid on him and he, you know, what was he supposed to do about it? He didn't know anything about it. Um, but, um, uh, now, it's easier to believe, at least, that he knew the cost, because when he goes home, he 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 longs, he yearns again to go home, but notice he yearned again to seek afar his land beneath the morning light. It doesn't say he wants to go home. It sounds like he knows he can't go home, but he wants to seek them from afar. He wants to see them. He wants to fly over them, and that's what he does, right? He doesn't fly over them and only then discover that he can't go back and comes to the tragic end, right? He is on errand there, and he accomplishes his errand. So what is his errand? We're not told. Exactly. Right. We don't know. To bear his shining lamp afar. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, same as the last guy. But it doesn't sound as tragic this time. Not something that, again, he's doomed to against his will, without his knowledge. Right? He signed up for this. And it seems to have something... Uh, to do with the weeping sore of women and of, elder, and, and of elven maids, right? Um, yeah, bearing his shining lamp afar, that's his job. He is the flamifer of westerness. What does that accomplish? Is... You could read it as merely more tragic. The, the weeping sore of women and, and of elven 
of Elven Maids, you could read that as he uh, he's now so removed, he can still hear them weeping, but he can't do anything to help, right? He can never go back. He can never do anything. To, he's just got to keep bearing his shining lamp, right? You could read it that way. What's the answer going to be? What's the answer going to be? What's the name of of Arendel's star? In the published Lord of the Rings, what's the name of Arendel's star? It's not been called that yet. Yes. Gil Estel, the star of high hope. What is his job? His job is to bring hope. And in the published Silmarillion, we see that, right? They see the rising of the new star, and it brings hope to the people of Middle-earth that their weeping has been heard in Valinor, right? Their message has been delivered. Exactly, exactly, Marianne. Um, That connection with hope is really important. Um, It's... And that seems to be his job, right? But... If it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm breaking my rule, right, of taking what we know later on and reading it back into this, I, I don't... Th- I'm not exactly doing that. My point is, I think that's... We're getting there. I think that Gil Estel comes from this, right? This exact evolution that we're, that we're seeing is the emergence of that idea. Um... Um, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's keep going. This is the final version. And if you remember Christopher's long explanation, this is the version of the poem that Christopher believes Tolkien meant to publish. This is the full version. The version that went to the printers and is included to this day in the Fellowship of the Ring is not the complete version. And Christopher has the... Uh, by the way, i got to just say on, uh, on an aside, I love it when Christopher gets... When you see Christopher's enthusiasm about the whole riddle. Like, it takes... Textual editors are a special breed. You know, not everybody is into that, right? Not everybody takes pleasure in the kinds of things that textual editors take pleasure in. You know, when you're looking at different variants and you can figure out exactly, like, okay, no, no, I'm pretty sure I can piece together what is the provenance of this text and the interrelationship among these. And when he figured out uh, how, like, oh, no, wait, like, at this version of the poem, it split, and this version continued in a couple... But he had misplaced this other one, which is then perfected into this other version. But then he misplaced that and sent that one away instead. Um, you can uh, you can see uh, Christopher Tolkien's excitement about that. Like, how... Like, just imagine how excited he must have been, you know, sitting there with all the... With the day that he finally figured all this out and had the insight as to how this happened. Uh, so I love that. I'm not... That's not me, exactly. It's kind of fun. I, I speak that language, but I, it's not what I would spend my life doing. But, um... Um... But anyway... You know, Josh, I don't know why Christopher hasn't fixed the published Fellowship of the Ring. Like, why he hasn't put this version in the published Fellowship of the Ring, um, if he's convinced that his father intended that. The only explanation I would give for that, Josh, or rather the only explanation that suggests itself to me, let me say, is Christopher's really cautious, right? 
he's he his father sent that other version out to the printers. His theory is that this is the one his father really intended. But it does not shock me that he does not choose to trump his father's action with his own theory, howsoever convinced he is of that theory. Remember, uh, Josh, the comment that he made at the beginning of Volume 1 of the Book of Lost Tales, um, when he didn't—how he talked about uh, not including the reference to the fact that that Bilbo's translations from the Elvish were supposed to be the Silmarillion, right? Uh, And providing that as a a little nugget to provide a frame for the Silmarillion. And that he basically chickened out on that because although it seemed really clear that that was what his dad intended, his dad never actually said it. So he didn't want to like, you know, he didn't want to put himself forward as Sam would say. Um, That kind of caution on is very typical of Christopher from what we've seen. Um, so it doesn't shock for that reason. It doesn't shock me, but I kind of wish he would. Um, but anyway, here is what Christopher claims, what Christopher believes to be the full complete version. And Josh, I love this version too. So I'll read a lot of it is very, very close to the previous version. Um, but again, thinking, so we won't go through it, you know, stanza by stanza, but, um, Let's hear the uh, let's hear the complete version. Arendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, with silver were her banners sewn. Her prow he fashioned like the swans, and white upon the phallus roam. That white upon the phallus roam. His coat that came of from that his coat that came from ancient kings of chained rings was forged of old. His shining shield all wounds defied with runes entwined of dwarven gold. His bow was made of dragon horn. His arrows shorn of ebony, of triple steel. His haberdashery, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword was like a flame in sheath, with gems was wreathed his helmet tall, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, from gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and passed and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of fear came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from east to west and from west to east and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. Okay. Big change, right? Most everything is the same except one huge change in this section, right? What's different? Nobody? Yes, yes, his arming is moved. His arming is moved. He it, Exactly, Mary, he arms himself, right? He's not armed by the elves. And this, you know, you could say it's a small change in the sense that we take a passage, the arming passage, which is quite similar, and we just move it to a different part of the poem, but the effect is profound. No longer do we have a mortal guy who is taken to fairy and transformed, Right? He is completely heroic at the beginning. He was already moving in that direction. 
right? He's already pretty studly and and uh, and heroic in the previous version, right? And that stanza that describes his heroic attempt to go into the West is very similar, right? But the moving of the arming is very interesting. And Jennifer, I almost wonder if Tolkien was thinking exactly the same question that you had. Like, what's the point of the elves arming him and prevent and keeping him from wounds if he's not if they're not sending him off into battle? That's why they did it at first. Um, so instead, he now arms himself. It's part of his setting out. And it shows him in context. And so, of course, it's changed. Because this is no longer fairy armor. Right? This is no longer otherworld armor that's being given him. He doesn't... He, his, the crest of his helmet isn't a flame anymore. Right? Instead... He's not being set up in panoply of ancient kings. His coat comes from ancient kings and was forged of old of chained rings, right? His shield is still written with runes that protect him from wounds, but they don't prevent any possibility of wounds. Uh, His shield defies all wounds, right? Which is kind of what all shields do as a as a rule, right? That's kind of their job is to defy wounds. But you know, the in, the implication is that the runes are efficacious in some way, but um, but they're not um, they're not absolute proof. Um, Mortnos triple steel, his haberdashery. It's again, it's very well formed, but it's not magical. You might say his dragon horn bow is pretty cool, right? That still sounds like it's exactly the same as before. But remember, he's Arendel, right? There are dragon horns available in Middle-earth to make a bow from. Pretty unusual, right? Pretty awesome, but not uh, totally otherworldly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Sharon, it is really funny that his scabbard of chalcedony is the only word-for-word surviving line from the original published poem. Um... His sword is like a flame, but it's not made of flame or emeralds or something like that anymore. Um, yeah, exactly, Josh. The survivors of Gondolin could have could have uh, could have made off with several horns, right, of dragons. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we have. He's not going to be. He's not being set into combat by the elves. He arms himself. So we have the emphasis on him as hero of Middle Earth, right? Now, remember, we were just unheralded. He homeward sped, right? Errandless, unheralded. He homeward sped. In might, the Feanorians that swore the unforgotten oath brought war into our Vernian with burning and with broken troth. And Elwing from her fastness dim then cast her in the waters wide. But like a mew was swiftly born, uplifted o'er the roaring tide. Through hopeless night she came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond the fire upon her carcanet. The Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with the living light and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow at middle night. Beyond the world, beyond the sea, then strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel, by path that seldom mortal goes, from Middle-earth on mighty breath as flying wraith across the grey and long-forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away. 
through evernight he back was borne on black and roaring waves that ran, or leagues unlit in foundered shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world, the music long, wherever foaming billows roll, and yellow gold and jewels wan. He saw the mountains silent rise, where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. A wanderer escaped from night, to haven white he came at last, to elven home, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mere. Lots of differences here, right? More story. Right. Um, we get the Feanorian threat, Kimber. Absolutely. Right. We get the... So, it places Eärendil more actively within his historical context. We don't just get Elwing flying out of nowhere, somehow. Right. We get the story behind that. We get the, 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 the oath of the Feanorians, their attack upon Arvernian, right? And Elwing casting herself into the waters and uplifted or the roaring tide like a mew, which is a seagull, right? Okay. Uh, so we get more, more, more backstory, more context to Elwing, right? And I love the, I love the imagery there. Um, her fastness dim. The darkness and despair of the war and the burning and the broken troth, and then she's locked in her fastness dim, and she casts her in. That is an assonance that I find really powerful. Her fastness dim, then cast her in the waters wide. She's besieged in a dim castle, and then goes from there to cast herself into the sea, apparently in despair, right? But she's born, but then she's uplifted or the roaring tide, like a mew. And that uplifting, right, through hopeless night, having been uplifted out of despair, she now goes through the hopeless night. So she now, like, pierces his own hopelessness and his own hopeless situation, which we've just been hearing about. Uh, And the darkness is lit by the light of the Silmarillion. I just love the way all of that works together. So cool. Um, Um... yeah, good Sharon was just uh, uh, focusing on the hopeless night there, too. Um, yeah, good. Um, yet, uh, Tony points out that the rhymes are almost all monosyllabic. Are you referring to the end rhymes, right, which still happen every other line, right? Oath, troth, wide, tide. Um, yes, in some places we don't have any more... Um, even a even a gesture at trisyllabic r- rhymes there, um, though we still do sometimes get um, some of that echoing going on, like darkness lit and carcanet, right? That's a one-syllable rhyme, but it it has that sort of that depth of echo, right? Same as like uh, living light and middle night, right? Similar, uh, similar there. Um, mighty breath and seas distressed. Um, no, sorry, that one. That's that's not even a, one of the regular. Across the gray and passed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the pairing there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Stephen points out, music long and jewels wan. Yes, yes, good, good. Um, okay, so apart from this, from the Feanorians, what else do we get here? What else is different? There's another, another, lots of new stuff here. It's much longer than the other version. Where is it longer? What's, what's added? What's added? Really great observation, John. Wow. Yeah, John is pointing out that the line, um, the, uh, the, the strands of pearl, uh, the strands of pearl are there and weren't there before, but John has gone further than that and recalled where else we have heard, where he's borrowing that line from. Uh, and, of course, he's borrowing that line from the Lay of Lathian. The strands of pearl uh, uh, is one of the things that uh, Finrod sings about in his song Duel with Sauron in the Lay of Lathian, which is quoted uh, at full in the published Silmarillion. Well, that passage is quoted at full in the published Silmarillion. Um, uh, yeah, so we get the strands of pearl, and if, as John goes on to point out, that that line of strands of pearl in, El, uh, uh, in elven lands, as I recall, John, um, is the last positive line before the triumph of darkness. Um, uh, so it's the, the, the last glimmer of beauty and hope uh, and memory that Finrod brings forward before Sauron conquers him and overwhelms him in the Lay of Lathian. And John points out that here, it's a transition point from the darkness of Middle-earth to the light and hope of Valinor, right? Uh, so it's working almost exactly oppositely. That's a fantastic observation, John. Really, really good. Um, yeah, okay. Um, look how much more of this there is. Right, we get so much more description. This is what in the uh, uh, in the Riven- in the original Rivendell poem was the carryover of uh, he passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold. Right, um, he's doing way more than passing the archipelagos. Right, um, it's been that's been more and more Valinorian as we've moved forward from there, but even though the Valinor names were already being used way back in the Rivendell version. But we get much more here. What are we getting? What does it add up to? What is the change? And the change is we're getting Eärendil's experience as a mortal coming. We got that reference to Forbidden Strands, right? Now we're the, the poem has really invested in the experience of the mortal who finally comes to Elvenland. And what does he see, right? Um... That whole description of the the strands of pearl where ends the world, the musical he's come to the end of the world, right? That that sense of like, this is the end of the world, right? Which a mortal would have coming in here. We get that, right? Wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels won, he saw the mountain silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees, right? Um, beheld afar beyond the seas. Again, we're we're getting his beholding of it. Right, a wanderer escaped from night to haven white. He came at last. What is his experience? What is his? What is he transitioning from? Um, how does this seem to him? That's where the poem really, really emphasizes. Uh, it's what the poem really emphasizes. Um, okay, let's keep going. 
He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and sages old him marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. They clothed him then in elven white, and seven lights before him sent, as through the Calakirian to, to hidden land forlorn he went. He came unto the timeless halls, where shining fall the countless years, the endless, and endless reigns the elder king, forever king on mountain sheer. And words unheard were spoken then, of folk and men and elven kin, beyond the world where visions showed, forbid to those that dwelt therein. A ship then new they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass with crystal keel, no shaven oar nor sail she bore, on silver mast, the Silmaril as lantern light and banner bright with silver and banner bright with living flame of fire unstained by Elbereth herself was set, who thither came and wings immortal made for him and laid on him undying doom to sail the shoreless skies and come beyond the sun and light of moon. What do you notice here? Notice Jennifer, um, just again thinking about the observation you made before. Now they take his armor away. Right? He removes his armor, and he's clothed instead in elven white. Right? Arendel is now explicitly going into military retirement. <laughs> right? Uh, he's not... Uh, he's done. Uh, he's done with, uh, with the fighting. Um, and we get him delivering his errand. Right? We're not told what it is. Exactly. Or what's said. In fact, we're told that we're not going to be told, right? Words unheard were spoken then of folk and men and elven kin. Uh, beyond the world where visions showed. Um, and Mary, yeah, it's really uh, the emphasis on the, uh, um, the, the unsullied light, right? That, uh, uh, that is in the Silmaril, um, but that Elbereth, um, uh, the fire unstained, by Elbereth herself was set, right? Uh, Banner bright with living flame. So she sets the Silmaril upon the mast. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Small point, but I think a really interesting one. The Undying Doom. Notice anything different about the Undying Doom? It was a mighty doom before, and now it's undying. But, uh, but, no, yes, Lynn, this is the first reference to Elbereth. Yeah, we've not had Elbereth's name appear. But that, of course, fits with the increased historical connection, right, uh, to the, to the legendarium. Interesting, Josh. Yeah, we see who gives him the doom. Um, Elbereth lays the doom on him herself, which is interesting. On what was Doom laid before? In every version before. Okay. Well, every version that has had a mighty Doom, right, ever since the Rivendell version. Um, Yes, on the ship. The mighty Doom is laid on the ship, so when it's transformed, a mighty Doom is laid on it. Right? And then, at the end of the poem, when the phrase mighty Doom comes around the second time, um, exactly, Mary. When it comes around the second time, it talks about the, the doom of the, of, of the mariner, right? 
Here from the beginning, the doom is laid on him by Elbereth. It's not laid on the ship. It's laid on him. Um, and that seems... Uh, <laughs> Arthur says, what, was Mando's busy at the time, right? He couldn't be bothered to lay a doom on him. Um, it is interesting that it's not Mando's, that it's Elbereth who lays the doom on him, isn't it? Um, yeah, let's keep going. From Evereven's lofty hills, where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From a, from world's end there he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and burning as an island star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where gray the Norland waters run. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. Till end of days, on errand high, a herald bright that never rests, to bear his burning lamp afar, the Flamifer of Westerness. Um, yeah, he is a herald, right? Um, yes. Um, you know what's really interesting about this to me? Uh, yearned again to find afar his home. The verb, to find afar his home. Um, to seek afar, right? And it was what it was in the previous version. And remember, we were talking at the time that it sounded like he, he, he knew. Like he knew he could just fly over and was cool with that. But he wanted to do that, right? But to find afar his home through shadows journeying seems to go back to the earlier, more tragic version of the poem, where he wants to go home. He wants to journey home. He wants to, to find his home. And can't. Um, which is a pretty cheeky way to tell the story of Arendel in the House of Elrond, I can certainly agree. Um, I still think that the message of hope is implicit. That's what he's a herald of. Um, he is a herald of the hope that is being brought by the Valar. He has announced, he's, he's, he, his presence announces it, right? Both initially to the, to, you know, the people of his generation at the end of the first age, um, and still in later generations, as we see with Sam and Mordor, right? Um, that he is still bearing, that he is still a herald of the same message. Um, yeah. Um, Lynn, that's a really great point. Um, yeah, Mary, the herald of hope until the end of time. It's a burden. A doom is a burden, right? But he's still accomplishing something. Um, and Lynn says that uh, a herald bright that never rests sounds even more 
hopeful. The previous version has a herald that shall never rest, right? Which emphasizes the weariness of it, right? But a herald bright that never rests, showing his vigilance, showing his diligence. And he's bright, literally, physically bright, of course, um, you know, to bear his burning lamp afar. Um, he gave hope to Middle-earth. He kept no hope for himself, uh, says James Oakley. Yeah, both sides of that, both sides of uh, Gilrein's Linnard are, are relevant to that, and not only relevant to Arundel in general, but I think increasingly emphasized in this version of the poem, um, that he is... Um, uh, he is bring, he is the the herald of hope, but he's kept no hope for himself. He wishes he he wants to go back. He wants to go home, but he can't. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, good. Um. Yana, I agree with you, and I've been thinking about this, but never mentioning it. Um. It is interesting to me, too, that he uses the word flammifer. He's been using it forever, right, it seems, in versions of this poem. The flammifer of Westerness has been the last line of this poem for a long time now. Um, and flammifer is, uh, is, is, you know, as, uh, as Yana says, with uh, Tolkien generally, uh, you know, trying to stick to the, the Germanic English roots and not liking Latinate stuff, flammifer is very Latinate, very Latinate, um, uh, for, for, well, uh, well, not light bearer, James, that would be Lucifer, uh, uh, flame bearer, right, that, uh, bearing the flame, uh, his burning lamp, right, that's why the word burning is included in the, in the penultimate line there, um, um, well, the point, Josh, isn't that he can't call him Lucifer, uh, though, of course, Lucifer is the morning star, um, uh, Sharon thinks the trisyllabic nature of flammifer is perhaps too enticing. Um, uh, uh, well, no, yeah, see, but James, it's not just a mistake, right? Lucifer is the morning star, right? Which is a Arendel, so it, it is Lucifer, actually, technically. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you can see why you would want to avoid that. But um, I could believe, uh, Sharon that the trisyllabic nature of flammifer and that connection, that uh, lampifar, flammifer, um, echo there in that in those lines makes all kinds of sense. You know, that he would go, that he would have gone there four versions of this poem ago, right? But that it survives is to me kind of interesting. You know, I, other than, I mean, I'd, who knows, maybe flammifer is just a cool enough Latin, a sufficiently cool um, Latin uh, word that, you know, it makes the cut, but um, it is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Evan says, uh, uh, Eärendil is Lucifer as he should have been, uh, thinking of Gandalf talking about Saruman. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lucifer as he should have been. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. All right, so let's come back to the main story. This is the early version of Bilbo talking with his elvish critics, 
right? Um, he's just said, Bilbo has just said that, you know, that hobbits and, and, and men are as different as peas and apples, right? No, little peas and large peas, said some. Their languages all taste much the same to us anyway, said others. And I love that image of the taste of language. How Tolkienian is that, right? But anyway... I won't argue with you, said Bilbo. I am sleepy after so much music and singing. I'll leave you to guess if you want to. Well, we guess that you thought of the first two lines, and Tarkil did all the rest for you, they cried. Now remember, what were the first two lines? That's just like flipping back for a second. Back to the, uh, uh, there was a merry passenger, a me- uh, there was a merry messenger, a passenger, a mariner. That's what they think Bilbo did, Right. Uh, the rest of it was obviously Tarkil, because this is before the official Arendil version that uh, that they're that they're saying this. So they'll give Bilbo credit for that little piece of nonsense, right? Uh, but Tarkil obviously wrote the rest. Um, that is Aragorn. Okay. Uh, okay, right. Wrong. Not even warm. Stone cold, in fact, said Bilbo with a laugh. He got up and came towards Frodo. Well, that's over, he said in a low voice. It went off better than I expected. I don't often get asked for a second hearing for any reason. As a matter of fact, quite a lot of it was Tarkil's. I'm not going to try and guess, said Frodo, smiling. I was half asleep when you began. It seemed to follow on from something I was dreaming about, and I didn't realize it was really you who were speaking until near the end. Now, um, this is really fun. Right. First of all, um, it's really fun to think of the change from this to the final published version. Right. Because we all know what what Bilbo is eventually going to say. Right. Um, They're going to say they can't tell the difference and he's going to leave them to guess. And then he's going to come to Frodo and tell them, actually, it was all mine. Except the only thing that Aragorn contributes to the poem is the insistence on the elf stone, right? The insistence on the green stone. Uh, uh, and Bilbo's like, uh, he insisted on that. I don't know why, right? Um, so uh, everything, it was 100% Bilbo. But originally, when, he's, when Tolkien has just made the Rivendell version, right? So he's just revised it into the new mortal abducted into fairy version. It's almost all Aragorn the poem, right? Quite a lot of it anyway, was his. So, okay. Um, Several things here, which are really fascinating. Think about the progression. We shift from Errantry to the Rivendell version when we give it to Bilbo. We cease to tell a silly story about funny little diminutive fairies, which probably wouldn't go over too well at Rivendell, even if Bilbo would ever think of a poem like that. Uh, and why would he? But uh, but anyway, okay, so we leave that behind, uh, and so we tell a proper grown-up fairy story. Okay, that's good. And it's also interesting that Bilbo, who is a mortal, living amongst elves, right? He, in leaving the Shire uh, and going off and retiring to Rivendell, has left his mortal land behind and gone off and he's now living in not Valinor, right? Not an elven home exactly, but an elven home, right? He's now surrounded by elves. He's one of the only mortals now surrounded by elves. And in that context, Bilbo is given the story of the mortal who is abducted by fairies and made into a champion, right? Except, wait, he didn't write the whole poem. 
much of the poem was written, maybe not all of the poem, as the elves suggest, but much of it anyway was written by Aragorn, another mortal who lives and moves in this elvish world, right? And who himself is this outcast wanderer, right? Who seems to have no home and no clear people associated with it. You know, he doesn't have like a home base of any kind, either in terms of geography or in terms of, uh, of his, of his people and where he belongs. Um, but he, uh, is, um, what? Wandering? Outcast? Um, and then it gets more tragic and then it becomes a Arendelle, right? Um, so seeing the, the progression of this poem, and, 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 but, but notice what happens, right? As the story becomes more about a Arendelle, becomes more and more, can, ceases to be just a mortal lost in fairy with either heroic or tragical, and either, heroic, either heroism and tragedy or just tragedy, right? As those first two versions, as it shifts to being, this is definitely a Arendelle. And this is a historical saga of Arendelle. It becomes more and more Bilbo's, right? As it becomes historical, as it becomes a song of lore, essentially, it becomes Bilbo, right? This is Bilbo. This is what Bilbo's been doing. This is Bilbo's homework, right? This is uh, this is his 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 poetical project that he's been doing since he retired to Rivendell. So it it goes from a story about mortals. Well, let's face it, more, a mortal kind of getting screwed over by the elves, right? The, at, at the very least, the peril of a mortal mixing with elves, right? Because it's plus, it's a definite, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of awesome, right? You could, I mean, who knows? You could get decked out in panoply of elven kings, right? But you might also get doomed never to return home and end up, you know, the flamifer of Westerness or something. Right. Uh, so it goes from that to this is the history of A. Arendel and the role that he has played. Right. Still with those same tragical elements and that same transgression of boundaries. Right. That becomes Bilbo. Um, and as it shifts to that, it becomes more and more Bilbo. So that Bilbo's own story seems to be changing. Right. Um, the Bilbo who sings uh, the Eärendilinwë, the right, the, which is the full Elvish version of the of the poem, right, the Eärendilinwë. Um, the the Bilbo who sings the Eärendilinwë is a very different hobbit, um, or at least has a very different relationship with the elves than the Bilbo who would write the Rivendell's uh, uh, song, right, the Rivendell version, the abduction version. Um, that at least is one who is uncertain, who is wondering, maybe, what's going to become of him. Settling down in Rivendell is nice, but, you know, there might be, uh, uh, it'll have to be paid for, and trouble may come of it, right? Um, that at least, something like that anxiety seems to lurk behind the beginning, and it's fascinating to me that that's linked with Aragorn himself as well. Right, that that same anxiety, that same uncertainty, is this is my story going to end well? Um, is this what happens when mortals do this? When the, you know, when 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 mortals cross over this line, um, and but by the end, it's no longer Aragorn at all. 
right? He just adds the one touch. Now it's Bilbo being presumptuous in telling this particular story and emphasizing what he does about it, right? Um, Because the story of the role that mortals can play, in the end, it becomes a positive story, in essence, right? There's still elements of tragedy, there's still there's still sorrow, but in the end, the the bravery, the gallantry of Eärendil to transgress that boundary, and remember that the newfound description of his wonder at the crossing of that line, right? What happens when he arrives at the Strands of Pearl, and then uh, he is now... Harold Bright, right? Um, who shall never rest. He has been transformed, and there's a cost. But it's not just tragic. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, he is... Um, so, if Bilbo... Bilbo doesn't seem as anxious about... He, Bilbo seems more comfortable with where things are and to appreciate what happens. But there's the cheekiness of it, right? It's not just man, like... We don't talk about Arendel around here. You know that, right? It's not just that kind of cheekiness. It's not just, hey, yeah, so you want to sing to Elrond a story about how tragic his father's situation is? Gutsy, right? Yes, it's that too, right? But it's also gutsy in the sense of, here's the mortal who lives at Rivendell saying, you know what? Mortals who cross the boundary, like... They got... They 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 can... They, you know, like, mighty doom can be laid upon them, man. Like, they accomplish stuff. It's, uh, that's, they're really important. One of the other cheeky elements of it is basically the implication, right? In context, that this is Bilbo being like, yeah, me and Arendel. That's right. The two of us. We're, under, you know, that we, this is what we've done, right? Which is cheeky, right? To say in the House of Elrond, uh, to compare yourself to Elrond's dad, um, Yes. Anyway, uh, lots of ways that I think this the the evolution of the story and the evolution of the of the of the poem and the way that we can see this stuff emerging is uh, uh, is really really neat. Uh, actually, um, okay. All right. So we still have lots of time because we're not behind. Fortunately, um, that's not true. We totally are. Okay. So next time we're going to and I mean this. You watch. This is going to because we don't have poetry to talk about next. Not much poetry. Anyway, we don't have poetry to talk about next time. So we're going to cover the whole Council of Elrond. We're going to do both Council of Elrond chapters next time. And you see if we don't. Okay? Uh, uh, But it's my birthday, and it's still my birthday, and I'm going to spend the whole class talking about Aaron Tree if I want to. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) So next week... Both chapters, read them both, because we're totally talking about both of them, chapters of the Council of Elrond, uh, and we will see. I'm going to be really interested in talking about the emergence of the Gondor story, uh, and of course the background for, uh, uh, for, um, for Aragorn. So, thanks everybody. Had a really great time. Thanks for spending my birthday evening with me, and I will see you guys next week as we rip through the Council of Elrond. Thanks, everybody. Good night.